business here? A civil suit. Wade v. Golden. It's Ms. Wade over there. Mr. Golden is over there. Ms. Wade is suing Mr. Golden for defamation. She's asking for $500,000 in damages. To win her case, Ms. Wade must prove that Mr. Golden not only made a false statement about her, but also hurt her financially. In other words, you can't just accuse someone of making up things about you. You've got to show it cost you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mass Bar Beat, the podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association. I'm Jason Scally, and what you've just heard is an excerpt from a performance of Defamation the Play, written by Todd Logan. A touring production, the play has been performed hundreds of times around the United States since its debut in 2010. At its core, the play is a courtroom drama about a civil lawsuit over a claim of defamation. A black woman plaintiff, who is a former business owner from the south side of Chicago, alleges that a Jewish real estate developer from a wealthy suburb falsely accused her of stealing his watch, an accusation that ultimately caused her to lose her graphics business. But the courtroom is really just the setting for what turns out to be a thought-provoking interactive program about diversity that forces the audience to confront and talk about stereotyping and perceptions of bias in the play and in our legal system. Last fall, the Massachusetts Bar Association was proud to sponsor the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association's presentation of Defamation the Play to an audience of students from several Boston-area high schools and community centers. The Massachusetts Bar Association has been a longtime proponent of rooting out bias in our legal system. And separately this spring, the MBA launched a series of continuing legal education programs aimed at identifying and eliminating implicit bias in the courtroom through voir dire, which is the questioning of potential jurors before they are seated. But getting involved as a sponsor of the Mass Black Lawyers' presentation of Defamation the Play offered a unique opportunity to get students talking about bias and diversity while also demystifying the legal system for them at the same time. So on this episode of the Mass Bar Beat, we'll take a look at Defamation the Play and talk with some of the high school students about their thoughts on the issues raised. We'll also get observations from Jeffrey Catalano, president of the Massachusetts Bar Association, but first, we'll hear from Stisha Emanuel from the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association, who explains why the MBLA brings this courtroom drama to Massachusetts each year and why it's important to talk about the issues raised in the play. Many students have never even attended a trial, um, and so they hear about lawyering, and some even aspire to be a lawyer um, and you know to go into the courtroom, but what does that really mean, and what does that look like? Um, Defamation the Play, a nationwide touring group, does an impeccable job at setting the stage, both literally and figuratively speaking, and it really provides uh, the students with an opportunity to see the mechanics of a courtroom. How does a judge enforce rules? Uh, how to elicit information or emotions from witnesses, whether they're friendly or hostile? What does it mean to object? <laughs> um, and so, you know. I think that oftentimes students are, they only see what's on the TV, um, and it's usually very fast-paced. And defamation um, takes a little bit of a step back and shows you just a snippet um, of what happens over about 45 minutes, um, which maybe is not as glamorous um, as the TV, but it provides them with a real, it provides them with real context. What message or lesson do you think that defamation, the play, is, is trying to convey to the students? There are so many messages uh, that the participants can draw from um, that it's honestly hard to choose one. 
I think one of the most important lessons is that we must own our own identity um, and under and understand that it plays a significant role in our thinking and daily interactions and that we must challenge our own notions and views of the world constantly. You know, many times people think once you become a lawyer, all of a sudden your personal experiences, you know, go out the wayside, and they don't. You carry these things with you, and personal experiences, they shape our thinking. I mean, we can't run away from that. It also talks a little bit about the idea of being a silent observer of injustice and discrimination. Um, and to be a silent observer is to be complicit in it. Um, I think that's really relevant even in today's society. Um, and given everything that's happening in our current political forum, um, it's even more important to think about our personal experiences and how they impact our thinking and actions. Um, in the play, you have a woman of color who is being accused of uh, essentially theft um, and is looking for vindication from the courts. Um, and the question is whether or not she actually has proof, um, whether she can show that there was just you know discriminatory intent and that the man who accused her of a certain crime um, did it intentionally. And so it brings up issues of race. It brings up issues of sex. It brings up issues of religion um, and privilege. Let's take you inside the play and set the scene a little. What you're about to hear is the plaintiff's lawyer cross-examining the defendant. Mr. Golden, didn't you testify that you don't make distinctions? That you see the person not their color. Isn't that what you said? I see color, Mr. Long. I don't treat people differently. But you do, Mr. Golden. In the United States, we have a secular government whose founding fathers made it clear that all men are created equal. We live and die by those words, sir. I know that your identity as a Jew is so strong that the survival of the Jewish people is, is so important to you that when it comes to your children and who they marry, your conscience is clear. In that one instance, it is okay to see the religion before you see the person. You can't characterize it that way. Okay. Yet you can still be a righteous man. Yes. Well, not just righteous, but vigilant when it comes to protecting the rights of everyone, regardless of race, creed, or color. Yes. So, Mr. Golden, let's bring it back here. This courtroom... Wade v. Golden, what happened? What broke down? How did it come to pass? You had no proof then and still have no tangible proof today that Miss Wade stole your watch. You didn't see her do it, did you? No. You didn't discover it on her. You provided no reason why she would do it, yet you accuse her. Not just accuse her. You tell her client, Miss Jordan, who was crucial to Miss Wade's livelihood, that she stole your watch. You don't stop there. You say, if I were you, I wouldn't use her. You did say that, didn't you, Mr. Golden? Yes. Mr. Golden, how could you, of all people, not realize the events that you were setting in motion you had a responsibility to go out of your way to have said to Miss Jordan, I suspect Miss Wade. I think Miss Wade may have stolen my watch, but I want to be perfectly clear. 
Unless I have indisputable proof, I do not want to see anything happen to Miss Wade's relationship with Siegel and Carmen. Mr. Golden, you had a right to question, but you had a far greater responsibility to protect. You didn't protect, sir, nor did you afford Miss Wade a fairness and a decency that you would have expected for yourself. Where was the vigilance to protect Miss Wade's rights? Where was your righteousness? Is it really in you at all? It wasn't in you on July 27, 2009. On that day, sir, you showed reckless disregard for the truth. You falsely accused Miss Wade, causing her to lose the Siegel and Carmen business. That, sir, is defamation. The trial also heated up when the defense attorney questioned the plaintiff on the witness stand. Like I said earlier, I looked through Edgeworth's brochures. Did you ever get up? No, I didn't. Don't believe you, Miss Wade. Don't believe me, Miss Allen. The last place that you wanted to be on that summer Saturday was Arthur Golden's house. But you had to go. I mean, your biggest client asked you to, and you couldn't take the chance to say no. You couldn't take that chance, could you? No, I couldn't. So you gathered yourself on that Saturday morning, stepped into a 92-degree, humid Chicago summer day. I mean, just a few degrees from triggering one of those alerts when they're telling people to stay inside. All the thoughts are racing through your mind. But you have to shutter the business? How are you going to pay back all that debt? Where are you going to live? Would you be able to even keep your condo? Oh, you did the math on that one and knew the answer was no. Had you done the math? Yes, I had done the I math. Mean, what could you do about any of it? The tanking economy, national graphics. I mean, their prices were a third less than yours. I bet you couldn't believe this was all happening, especially to you, Miss Wade, a proud black woman. I mean, how could a life come undone so fast? Then you're on the damn train to Winneka, the land of the haves and have-a-lots. Getting the look each time you pass someone. Getting stopped by the Winneka police to be asked, do you know where you're going? How thirsty you must have been. How insulted you were that you weren't offered a drink worse. How angry you were at yourself for not having enough self-confidence to even ask for a glass of water. How unimportant Mr. Golden made you feel by showing up late. You got that right. Objection, Your Honor. Is this going anywhere? You had your say, Mr. Lawton. Sounds like the pot's calling the kettle. You had your say, because Alan's going to get hurt. Then Golden tells you about the theater built for his son, who probably never had to pay for a roof over his head, and here you are battling to keep a roof over your own head. I mean, you have fought your entire life to find peace, and now it was all coming undone, sitting there listening to Golden go on and on. I mean, what an internal fight it must have been for you not to explode. And then Golden gets this call and disappears. So little respect to you. No, Miss Wade, you didn't stay in your chair. You couldn't have. Your world was imploding. You were ready to jump up out of your skin. You stood up. You walked around that room. Everywhere you turned, you were mocked. Photos of Golden and his family in Paris, London, Rome, places you had never been and only dreamed of being. How long was he going to be on that damn call? I mean, the pressure was building. You needed a release. You needed something that would take the pain away. Something that would make you feel like you had power again. You decided to do something you never thought you'd do when you woke up that morning. You decided to steal something, didn't you, Ms. Wade? No, I did not. Sure you did. But it couldn't just be anything. It had to be something that was something that was personal. That's why you didn't take the wallet. Wallets can be replaced. Contents of wallets can be replaced. But a watch is personal. So that's how you release the pressure. That's how you re-empowered yourself. You stole the watch. Isn't that right, Miss Wade? No, that isn't right. Having heard from the plaintiff, the defendant, and their witnesses, the students in the audience learned that the twist to this defamation program 
was that they would serve as the jury on the case. They were to decide if the plaintiff had proven her claim of defamation. Among the questions they would have to consider, did the defendant cause the plaintiff to lose her top client and ultimately her business by falsely claiming she had stolen his watch? Or even if the defendant falsely claimed she stole his watch, was there proof it caused the plaintiff financial harm? Or did the plaintiff actually steal the defendant's watch because of the financial trouble she was in, as the defendant claimed? A snap poll taken by the judge showed many of the students favored the plaintiff, although several students still indicated they were undecided. After some further discussion over not only the elements of defamation, but also the issues of bias and stereotyping, the audience was again polled and officially found in favor of the plaintiff. We talked with two of the students after the play to get their reactions and hear what they learned from this program. First, I spoke with Michelle, a freshman who attended the play with Crossroads, a nonprofit community center in Boston. I think that the play was really well produced, and I feel like it really got the message that they were trying to display out there, and I feel like it really gave everyone a better understanding of defamation and just racism and discrimination in general, because before going in, I had no idea what defamation was, and it really taught a lot of the kids who were in there, if they didn't already know what a sort of courtroom is like. What message um, or lesson do you think that this play is trying to convey to audiences? Um, I believe that the play is trying to convey a sort of lesson about racism and about biases and discrimination and how it might not be completely overt, but it still might be there or you still might be raised with some sort of bias against others or towards others. And it sort of displayed that through defamation in the court case. Would you characterize the discrimination as overt discrimination or more implicit or or under the surface? I think it was more under the surface because I feel like it's natural for humans to sort of categorize people. It's just how our brain works. We like to look for patterns in certain places. And even though patterns in race isn't the right thing to do, I think people who are privileged and who don't have that experience, they automatically do it without realizing it. But racism that is overt and racism that is sort of like hidden or not as conscious is like still the same. It's still racism. Next, I talked with Edel, a junior at Boston Latin School, who was also in the audience. The bias, the stereotyping, the discrimination that you saw in this play, do you think it was more overt or or more sort of under the surface? I believe it was more over the surface. In the play, it was clear that the plaintiff came to the conclusion in the beginning that the man accused her of stealing the watch because of the fact that she was a black woman. Like, Mm -hmm. when she said that, it was clear that, you know, she sees um, discrimination very clearly. Now, have you had a chance to talk to any of your classmates or colleagues about the play? Did they reach similar conclusions that you did? I remember after the play, a lot of students agreed with the um, the decision that the plaintiff, you know, that she was right about her claims. Um, and a lot of them started talking about, like, their own experiences, um, not particularly with defamation, but with, like, times where, like, because of the fact that they're a person of color, they've been blamed and, like, stereotyped for different things and how they could relate to that because um, it's, you know, a worldwide, worldwide experience for those people. So, like, they kind of um, they kind of sympathized and they agreed with, like, the decision. Now, did this play increase or de- decrease your interest in the legal profession? 
I think that did increase my interest because it made me want to explore something that I've never seen before and also, like, explore, like, the legal um, profession and, like, what it takes to be in that profession. NBA President Jeffrey Catalano of Todd and Wells also attended the play and answered questions from students afterward. I spoke with Jeffrey to get his thoughts about the students' reaction. I was really impressed. I thought that they handled it with such maturity. Um, I appreciated so much hearing um, such honesty from them about a very complicated matter. And they addressed it in a way that wasn't um, inflammatory. Uh, I don't think anybody there would have felt offended by the remarks that were being made. But uh, they were disclosing through their deliberations that this stuff really matters for them. And as young people... They're just now becoming sensitized to it, and this play helps them to become sensitized so that when they become young adults and mature adults that, uh, and older adults, that they are, remain, hopefully, sensitized to these issues. Uh, and this play goes a long way towards uh, making that happen. The MBLA's Stisha Emanuel, who also works at Todd & Weld, has now seen this play several times. And I asked her if anything surprises her about the students' reactions each time. Uh, the students always amaze me. <laughs> um, some of them ask really thought-provoking questions um, or pick up on nuances uh, that I even miss. Um, I know the younger generation tends to get a lot of flack for being out of touch and social media obsessed and you know lacking the human interaction or compassion or understanding uh, that many of us yeah, at the beginning or pre-internet um, and social media you know have developed. But when you hear some of these students and their commentary, you know that's actually really not the case. Even the comment where a student this this year had picked up on the issue of colorism within the African American community and how you know a woman who is lighter skin um, might not necessarily I don't want to say pass but may have an easier time in the legal system versus someone who is of darker skin. Um, and playing out whether or not the woman who, the light-skinned African-American woman who was the, playing the role of the attorney understood the complexities that the darkest-skinned woman who was stating that she was being defamed, if, if she really understood where she was coming from. Now that we've heard from the students, what, what can lawyers, in your opinion, learn from the students' observations? I think it's really important to take a step back um, and observe your case from, you know, someone else's vantage point. And so not even just, you know, opposing counsel or whoever is on the other side, uh, so possibly the defendant or if you're the defendant, the plaintiff, but also think about, you know, your peers, the jury members that you're drawing from um, in the community that they live in. Um, what are their experiences? Um, what are their biases? Um, and how do you address that? And I don't think that sugarcoating these issues are helpful to us progressing as a society or even as a legal community. I think that it's important for us to tactfully talk about our differences in a respectful way, but nevertheless talk about them. We shouldn't shy away from 
you know, these hard topics, your jury will get it um, because more often than not, they may have lived it. Or if they haven't lived it, then, you know, they may be open to learning about others' differences and how that plays a role. Why do you think it's important to get people talking about, about bias? Well, especially in our legal system, I think for so long um, we were ignorant of how much of it exists within our legal system. And only in the last several years have we become more sensitized to it. I'm very proud that the MBA um, is having a seminar dealing specifically with um, implicit bias, uh, in particular using voir dire and juror questioning to eliminate bias uh, from a jury. Because I think everybody harbors some bias. Um, you know, whatever, it may not be racial, but it may be racial, and it, or it may be age-related, or it may be, you know, what county you're from. So there's a lot of issues that are complicated that we as adults need to be dealing with. And the sooner we sensitize young people to issues of implicit bias, the better, because then they'll make that a continuing part of the dialogue within the legal system as hopefully some of these people become lawyers or judges or enter the, the judicial system in some capacity. So Jeff, if you could talk for a minute about the MBA's involvement this year with the MBLA. You know, the MBA has always been a strong supporter of the MBLA. You know, we're very proud to sponsor their annual dinners, and that's been a source of pride for us. And uh, But, you know, this was an opportunity to do even more than that, because um, I personally um, saw that, you know, the MBA and the MBLA can become great partners and trying to facilitate dialogue around these very sensitive issues. And I brought to the table a very personal experience because both of my children go to Boston Latin School, and that school dealt with its own challenges, not unique to that school, but certainly um, dealt with challenges very recently around the issue of race. And I felt that was an opportunity for me to get very familiar with what's going on among our high school's uh, students and uh, decided that I would use that experience to create something or help sponsor something uh, very productive. And I was, by the way, very proud of the fact that a large number of students from Boston Land attended this. And so I saw from a personal perspective and from my role as the president of the MBA that this was an opportunity to do something that was really constructive, that was um, ultimately very positive, even if some of the issues were, uh, that were brought up were controversial and uh, provocative. Um, the takeaway was that everybody felt, I think, um, I can't speak for all the students, obviously, but I, I got a general sense that everybody felt really good about having participated in this, which, by the way, was on a Friday night when a lot of kids would have maybe many other things they could rather be doing. But there were so many kids in that courtroom uh, who came to Suffolk Law just so they can be part of this important dialogue. And uh, it kind of reaffirmed my faith in, uh, in many of our young people. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Mass Bar Beat. We'd like to thank the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association, especially Stisha Emanuel, who spoke with us for this episode. I'd also like to thank Rochelle and Edel, the students who agreed to be interviewed for our podcast. Special thanks go to MBA President Jeffrey Catalano, who made this sponsorship possible. And of course, last but definitely not least, I want to express our gratitude to the producers and cast of Defamation, who did such a fantastic job with the program. You can learn more about this fascinating courtroom drama at its website, www.defamationtheplay.com. Until next time, I'm Jason Scally of the Massachusetts Bar Association. Thank you for listening.